Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome to the podcast. Today, it's my great pleasure to host Mike Weinberg. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeremy, thank you for having me. It's a treat for me to talk to Mike, whom I really don't think I've spoken before, uh, yet I feel like I have because I've read three of his books. I read uh, his latest book, Sales Truth, which is a bit of the focus of what we're going to talk about today. I've also read New Sales Simplified, and you got another one. I think it's Sales Management Simplified. Is that right? Yeah, you. Uh, in fact, I should start with a huge thank you. I think you have the most helpful review on Amazon for my sales management book. So I appreciate your uh, your thoroughness and your insight, and I'm really honored to, to chat with you. My reviews are not so much reviews as they are like Cliff Notes versions of sales books. And I, I stick them up on a non-sales loft related site. It's called Selling Sherpa that I've had for years. So if you want to find a good summaries of, of Mike's book to entice you to buy them, then go ahead and check those out. Today, topic-wise, we're going to start with whether or not salespeople should create content or not because... I posted something from Mike's book on LinkedIn and people went crazy commenting on that. So I think that's a good place to start and then we'll go from there. But Mike, before we do that, I always ask guests one starting question, which is, you know, other than the stuff you've written, what is your favorite sales book of all time and why was that so influential to you? I'm going to go back in the time machine a little bit and start with Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play by Mahan Khalsa. And then Baseline Selling by Dave Curlin, I think is a phenomenal book that should have a lot more attention and reviews than it does. It's so practical, so helpful on sales process. Of the modern authors, I'm almost scared to say people, but I really do love Jeb's Fanatical Prospecting because I felt like the world needed a book just on prospecting. Andy Paul's got a great book that gets very little attention that should be much more popular, Amp Up Your Sales. Mark Hunter's book, I'm almost afraid to keep going, you know, but going way back in the time machine, some of the books that were really influential were Baseline Selling and Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play by Mahan Khalsa. I second the motion on Baseline Selling. It's been around for a while and I had not read it. And then a, a few of our guests referred it to me and, and I, I totally concur. Great book. Let's get into the topic at hand. I'm going to read something from your book and let's take that as a jumping off point. I'd love to hear how people have reacted to that. So here's the quote. Unless you can find sellers in similar roles having tremendous success from creating and publishing their own content... I would be highly skeptical. You'd be well-served following that route. Can you elaborate on that position and how people have reacted? Let me start with this. I'm from the Northeast, like you, and I'm blunt and direct, and I often will write in extremes, or even when I'm teaching, make extreme statements to make a point. So we'll start with that as the the premise. And I wrote that in reaction to some of the absolutely um, dogmatic, over-the-top statements that I'm seeing from a lot of today sales experts who tell salespeople not only are you stupid and we should make fun of you for using traditional methods like picking up the phone. In fact, instead of doing that, you would be much better served by creating your own IP and publishing your own content, that that would draw you more leads and be more effective than you actually picking up the phone and and chasing people on a strategic target prospect list. And while I will come off like a hypocrite saying this, and I was very clear in the book that I fully acknowledge that most of my business comes from putting out content. I drew a very clear distinction between the typical business-to-business salesperson working in a company and someone who's an independent author consultant who gets paid for his IP and you know is a writer. I love that you brought this up first. Like, why don't we just jump right into the deep end of the pool? But my biggest concern is people preaching that what's old is dead and only what new works. 
some guy uh, overseas said it a couple weeks ago. He quoted Gary V and played a little clip from Gary V's video, you know, and Gary dropping his F-bombs and wearing his ski cap in the middle yeah. of the summer. I'm not making fun of the guy's brilliant and he's got a huge following, but I'm just not sure how applicable his message and content is for the average B2B salesperson. But Gary said, you got to put out 100 pieces of content a day. And this guru, sales guru, was saying, see, see, I told you, like, you know, the phone's dead. You need to do that. And my argument is, A, I'm not sure I see a lot of proof that that actually is what top producers in industries that I serve are doing. And I've got clients in big defense, big data, big trucks, big distribution. Like, it's a pretty wide gamut. I don't see top producing salespeople put out content. That's number one. And I'll, I'll give you number two and I'll let you respond because I'm, I'm curious about some of the reaction that you're seeing. Most salespeople are not the best writers. It's not their best gift. And I think there's a lot of danger in telling people that, to, that they have to do something that they're not necessarily good at. And then there are many, many companies in highly regulated industries where it's not so simple for a salesperson just to put out a blog post or a, a significant article because there are compliance issues and there's legal regulations. And when you combine that with writing ability, I just question the validity of the advice that says, yeah, don't pick up the phone. That's kind of a waste. Why don't you write articles and put it out there? And people, when they're ready, when they're 57% through their buying process, will come running to you and invite you to join them into their already in-progress buying process. I agree with you on almost every level, but I think I have some degree of obligation to play devil's advocate on pieces of this. So let me push on the argument a bit. You know, let's let's presume that let, you're selling to somebody and they are very likely these days to check you out on social media, right? They're going to go check you out on LinkedIn to figure out whether you're the real deal. So the argument could be made that you should, as a salesperson, publish content because that serves as your bona fides, basically. Yeah, I can't argue with that. But when we say they should publish content, whose content? Does it have to be self-generated content or can it be well-written pieces that someone has provided to you that you're sharing? I read a lot of salespeople's emails. Part of what I do with my clients is help them with messaging and help salespeople craft more effective messages that get routed through email, through voicemail, other ways. And I will tell you that most salespeople don't write very well. I read proposals that salespeople have to write and I scratch my head and think, wow. And that's where I get really concerned when I hear you have to put out content. So I guess some of the question is who, whose content is it? Imagine that you are sending out other people's content. Do you think that that's just sort of boring content if you're just reposting other people's stuff? It could be. I think there's probably a difference between posting intelligent statements and comments or pieces of your message or case studies or things that would have tremendous relevance and would be safer to write than publishing freeform content where there's a lot of room for opinion and error. It always seems to be there's some agenda behind the message that says, yeah, you need to put out content, you need to do this, and by the way, I can help you with that. When the social selling experts point to Kylie Jenner as the example for why social selling works, and when another inbound marketing guy positioning himself as a salesperson tell salespeople that Gary V is your role model and you should listen to him. I'm telling you in my clients, they're not effective role models for B2B sellers. That, that what they do is not going to produce business for software companies and defense companies and distributors and defense contractors and big data. I mean, I, I don't see it. When you quote these people, they look foolish, but they're, they're very powerful when they're behind a keyboard telling you what works in sales. And yet I have clients all over the globe and I go in there and I see what the salespeople are doing and they're not writing their own articles. I wrote this book because I'm so frustrated because the nonsense hurts salespeople. 
Changing gear to something that might be more kind of actionable as well. I mean, it's actionable to not do stupid things. So <laughs> there's also actionable of what to do that's good. Let's start with the premise that, well, let me ask you this question, right? Is it important for salespeople, independent of publishing content, to be experts? I think it sure helps when you are an expert, at least in your industry, and understand the big challenges that your client base faces so you can address them and, and have intelligent business dialogue. But I will tell you, I've seen in my own career, and including my own sales and then with a lot of my clients, very often you find rookies who have a lot of sales success. And sometimes it's they're young and sometimes it's because they're new to their industry or their company. And they don't really understand all the dynamics. You know, they're not in a position to be an expert per se, but they learn enough vocabulary so they can articulate a compelling client issue focused or outcome focused message. And they're good at probing and they're likable and they meet the right people and they have EQ. So they're able to create and advance sales opportunities without being the expert, but they they know where to go to get help and bring experts to meetings when necessary. I recently was reading Anthony's book, The Lost Art of Closing, which I, is another strong recommendation. And he had a really great point, which was salespeople don't need to necessarily teach an industry trend, for example, to someone they're selling to that the person doesn't already know. You just need to tap into that trend that is bothering them and connect that train to a series of consequences that can be solved. And maybe you know a few solutions which may or may not involve your product, and then you can bridge those solutions to your product. And that's why I'm always reminding salespeople to stop being so call reluctant or so hesitant. Because, and you don't need to be the expert. You can always go get some help. I, I have a situation with one of my longtime clients. I go on sales calls with them. And it's a very small company. And the CEO of this company is a, like the guy in his industry. And he's even won cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. And I will go with him on sales calls. And I'll play vice president of sales so he can play expert. And I conduct one pretty darn good sales call for that company. I don't work there. you know, And I'm not an expert in the space that they serve. But but I can open up a meeting and set an agenda and I can tell our story and I can ask great probing questions and find pain and opportunity. What I can't do is talk in great technical detail about their solution. And that's why I have an expert with me in the room. You don't need to be the guy, but you do need to have vocabulary and be able to have a business conversation with another senior level person. In my early days, I was a semiconductor industry analyst in my 20s, and I had this kind of same question. And I went out with my boss to go visit CEOs of semiconductor companies. And I was working out in Silicon Valley. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm, these people are just going to destroy me. I'm just a mealy-faced kid. And you know, my boss gave me this really reassuring advice is that the more senior the people that you talk with, the less in the technical weeds they are. The key thing that he was advising me to do was just to make sure I had the ability to ask great questions and maybe a good seed starter question or two to get things going. I wanted to also kind of transition. I mean, as we're talking about content, you had a, a very strong quibble on the book with the finding that people are 57% of their way through their sales cycle before inter interacting with a salesperson. I'm not a researcher and I don't have a ton of empirical data, but when I started hearing the way the sales industry took the 57% stat, and that's out of the challenger sale, CEB research that says today's buyer typically goes 57% through their buying process before they engage with a salesperson. And the moment I heard that, I thought that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it's only true when lazy reactive salespeople sit on their ass and wait for a lead. 
But in my own career and in my own clients that I'm working with, that never happens because we're proactively pursuing strategic target prospects. We've decided who we can help and we're going after them. We prospect, we initiate contact, we even social sell. We go to trade shows, we pursue people, we send snail mail. We get into conversations before they're anywhere near 57% down their process. Oftentimes the best sales hunters, and this is a big theme of the book, they create their own sales opportunities. They don't chase them. They're creative. So there are times they're talking to people who aren't even shopping at all, but they're good at getting an opportunity because they will get a meeting and they ask questions and they push and they challenge and they tell a story and paint a picture for a better future. And then what happened was the people in the inbound and social world use that as a very uh, straw man statistic to tell you, see, I told you prospecting doesn't work. You need to do all this other stuff so that when they are getting 57% down the path, they're seeing you in all these places online. So they'll reach out and contact you. So I knew it was goofy and it didn't align with what I saw in my own clients. And then when serious decisions came out, it's probably four years ago now with their own research that debunked the myth, I was very relieved. And then, I don't know, a year ago or a little more, Mike Schultz and Rain Group came out with their study that was very comprehensive and it basically debunked the whole stupid myth. And they have the exact opposite data that says 82% of buyers will take a meeting with a salesperson who initiates contact with them. And half of those meetings were secured by the telephone. And it's like, thank you. I need salespeople to see the other side of this. So that's why I wrote about it. I had probably a similar-ish reaction. I do love data and I love statistics. What we don't know about that data is the following, right? You can have buyers be 57% of the way through the buying process if on average that's really true, right? If you had a normal distribution and it peaked at 57%, that I would buy. Maybe it is that, you know, there are a lot of buyers who are zero to 10% and a lot that are 90 to 100, right? So you got those two peaks. And if you average that out, you get 57%. But that's just kind of, you know, an average is meaningless when you don't have a normal distribution. You know, the reason I just... Wanted to bring this up also is that I think, I don't know if this is because of the current sort of political environment, people are tending to discount data. And my feeling is like, I trust then verify with data. So I'm not skeptical towards it. I'd rather make decisions with data if I have it and then just figure out whether it passes the sniff test or not. Mm. Well, I don't know. That's that's an interesting challenge as you bring that up because there's such distrust right now. There's a lot of danger in politics because there's no rationality right now. So people don't believe the data that they see because people tell them it's fake, even if it's accurate. So you're making a good point that the current environment is potentially causing people to be dismissive of data. And then when you go back to the examples that we've talked about, sometimes it's people just know it's being manipulated or it's, there's an agenda behind it. So I need to be careful what I'm hearing. And I think that's the key is, right, is, is you get a piece of, of information, right, a piece of data, and you ask yourself, like, A, does this person have an agenda? And B, does it pass muster common sense wise, right? Like the 57% stat is self-serving to to people who want to promote inbound and social media to the exclusion of the blocking and tackling that, you know, you remind people is so important in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it, it also just doesn't pass the sniff test. Like who buys that way, right? Who waits that long when they need something? Trying to get to your provocative stuff. So this is towards the end of the book. I'll read the quote here and we'll, we'll chat a little bit about this too. So accountability, particularly when well executed, trumps coaching and enabling every day of the month and twice on the day that the sales report gets published. So you're, you're arguing that accountability is far more important than coaching. Can you expand a little bit more on your distinction? 
what I'm saying there is more a pushback and holding up a mirror to sales leaders because of what I see in my clients. It's very trendy today to talk about enabling and coaching. It's not trendy to talk about accountability. In fact, online, it's almost the opposite. It's in vogue to make fun of managers actually holding people accountable for results and talk about really your job is to coach and enable. So what I have seen that good management is not micromanagement and accountability isn't necessarily dirty or demotivating and that you can very easily hold salespeople accountable without micromanaging or demotivating the team. So I am on a mission constantly reminding sales leaders and sales managers that accountability is maybe the most important part of your job because sales is about results. And we could talk about coaching and enabling all day long, but the reality is, is that in sales, we are judged by the numbers that end up on the sales report at the end of the day. So it's really, really important for managers to regularly review a salesperson's results and their pipeline, mostly opportunities created and advanced. And then if necessary, then get into their, their activity if the pipeline is not healthy and, and flowing. I rarely ever, I mean, I would say almost never, I've seen a sales team fail or struggle because they're not enabled with some cool tool or process. But I see sales teams fail all the time because there's lack of accountability and they leave the wrong people in the job too long or they don't coach up underperformers. They just don't deal with it. So that's where I come from on that. And I will tell you that one best practice of conducting a 10 to 15 minute once a month, one-on-one manager salesperson accountability meeting that flows through results, pipe and activity in that order. I've seen transform culture and results on sales teams. And that's why I'm so strong on that topic. I am with you. I do think that the accountability is the bigger problem to solve. I think my point was simply, you know, there, there are so many false dichotomies out there. If you were to hear someone say the aphorism, measure twice, cut once, right? That sounds right. And then you hear another one, uh, Nike's catchphrase, just do it. Those things are diametrically opposed, but they're actually both correct and they depend on context. And, <laughs> and you know, same thing here, which is like, the ultimate is to have strong coaching enablement and strong accountability, right? It's an and, not an or. The last thing I wanted to react to real quickly is, you know, you mentioned that good management is not micromanagement. And there are contexts in which micromanagement, even of salespeople, is appropriate. In particular, if someone is low skill, then that is a time where micromanagement might actually help them. You could say low skill and also someone who's really struggling that needs intense supervision and handholding. But in both of those cases, I think you and I would also probably come around at some point and go, we have to make a coach up or coach out decision because it's not scalable or doesn't work to have someone that if they're that low skill or that low performance, it's probably not sustainable if the manager has to dedicate a significant portion of their life to propping up that person. You were, you know, VP of sales, uh, director of sales, regional sales manager, like you, you have walked the walk and carried the bag in your experience. What percentage of kind of people who are struggling actually make it out of out of struggle and become average to exceptional performers over time? No one asked that question. That's such a good question. It varies by complexity, but I'd say up to a quarter, up to 25% of people who you would say were probably failing when coached well, when held accountable well, when equipped with better tools, make the transition and become productive passing salespeople. You know, so it's not a high percentage thing, but that's why sales managers need to address performance and have regular accountability and coaching meetings, both, because you can't let it go on forever. You've got to call out what it is. And the truth is, even if you don't get someone coached up to the level you'd like them to, 
putting someone on a coach up plan is always a good thing because either you coach them to the level they need to be, which is great, or B, you come to the realization after extra coaching and accountability, they can't do it. And then you have to set them free to go do something else because otherwise you're allowing underperformance to go on, kill your culture, ruin your numbers. It's, it's brutal. And I will tell you, Jeremy, this is the crazy thing. I work with sales managers that look at me with a straight face and say, you know, I'm not going to deal with that underperformer because I'm afraid if I have a couple hard conversations, they might leave. And then I got to deal with recruiting or an empty territory. And I don't want that. And I look at that manager, I go, you realize you just, you're committing malpractice. Like that's sales management malpractice. Like that's not an acceptable answer that you're lazy. You don't want the hassle of recruiting or you don't want to deal with the territory problem because you have someone who's failing and you don't want to deal with it. Like that's bad. I love that expression. I think it's right on. I think it is sales management malpractice. If people do want to find out more about you, about the books, uh, get in touch with you, how should they do that? My website's real simple, mikeweinberg.com, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, mikeweinberg.com. And on social, it's Mike underscore Weinberg. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.